Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Welcome everybody to a special summertime edition of the Into the Impossible podcast. I'm your fearful host, Dr. Brian Keating, the Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Physics at UC San Diego, and I'm joined by another distinguished professor from the University of California, Professor Ben Mazine. I don't UC think I'm a distinguished professor. I am the Worcester Chair of Experimental Physics, though. And Ben is in town for a super secret reason that we can't talk about, <coughs> Jason. Uh, but we will. Maybe we will. We'll talk a little bit about that. But I want to expose you to the world of experimental physics because we don't get enough of that on the Into the Impossible podcast. Because my friends, some of my best friends are theorists, Ben. I don't know. Uh, I'll forgive you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they write these wonderful books, and very few experimentalists write these books. And uh, because of that, we have a bias, unintentional as it is towards our brainiac friends, including Sarah Seeger, who was recently in town visiting as well. Now, um, I want to make the point that there are many branches of physics. There's not only astrophysics, although that's what Ben and I happen to do or specialize in, but within astrophysics, I claim there's no more diverse type of physics that you could do, because you have to do everything, right, Ben? Yeah, I think uh, in astrophysics, really, um, it is the mother science. You have a uh, all, all of science happens in the universe, right? Therefore, it's astrophysics. <laughs> so I do think it is the mother science. And we were talking over lunch about uh, this notion that, you know, kind of the, the, the prevailing way that people think about astrophysics is, oh, it just depends on things that are out there. But um, with the exception of biophysics, although now we're getting into astrobiology, maybe mm -hmm. that is a part of astrophysics. So talk a little bit about what you do, the type of sensors and detectors that you make, and then we'll get in and we'll talk about aliens, which I, I think that you might be forbidden to talk about. All right. Sounds good. So the work in my lab uh, centers around a technology called microwave kinetic inductance detectors, or MKIDs. These are detectors that um, are extraordinarily uh, sensitive um, photon sensors. We use them uh, in the optical and near IR where I work because they give you unique advantages over the conventional detector technology like the CMOS detectors uh, based on silicon that are in your cell phone. Um, so while the MKIDs, these, these fantastically sensitive detectors that can sense uh, a single photon, tell you the energy of that photon, and tell you when it arrived to within a microsecond, um, without any false counts, with no read noise or dark current. Um, so wh while those detectors are the core competency of the lab, it's the application of those detectors uh, where that gets th that I think is really exciting. So what we do um, is we take these detectors, we we develop them from the ground up. We're very vertically integrated um, in in ways that that very few physics labs are. So we do material science to develop new superconductors. Uh, then we do condensed matter physics to understand the um, the detectors and to make them into the best detectors we can make. Then we per then we do lithography and um, and sort of standard semiconductor process or semiconductor type processing to make arrays of these detectors. We then take them in the lab. We do testing on them. We iterate and improve them. And when they're ready, we package them up into um, a camera and we build a big camera around them. Then we'll bring that camera to the telescope and we'll point it at the sky. And the thing that I'm most interested in, the thing that I point uh, at the sky most for is looking for uh, extrasolar planets. So we're trying to look for planets around nearby stars, and we're doing this um, using a technique called direct imaging. So most of the techniques for finding planets are indirect techniques where you look at the influence of the planet on the light of the star. 
In direct imaging, you're trying to actually take a picture of the solar system. So you're looking at light either reflected by the planets or emitted in thermal radiation from the planet itself. This technique is extremely technically challenging because it relies on a couple a couple very hard things. The first one is something called adaptive optics. So adaptive optics is a technique where you um, look at a bright star and figure out all the distortions that the atmosphere has introduced into the light that's coming to you. And then you use a rubber mirror, so it's a, a, a flexible mirror with pistons behind it, to correct for those distortions thousands of times a second. What you're trying to do is remove that atmospheric turbulence and give you the, the same kind of diffraction limited image you'd see in space. So that is complicated and has a lot of uh, a lot of ways to go wrong. The second thing you need is um, something called the coronagraph, which blocks the light from the star but passes the light of the very nearby planet. And the third thing you need is a science instrument that sits behind them to collect this information and to do as good a job as possible at distinguishing photons that came from uh, the star versus photons that came from the planet. And that's where my technology, the MKIDS, come in. We currently have a a 20,000 pixel MKID camera, uh, the largest superconducting uh, array on the planet, at least maybe until Simon's Observatory comes online, um, sitting behind this, the eight meters uh, Subaru uh, Observatory telescope, um, behind the Skexeo um, adaptive optic system and coronagraph. And um, that um, instrument is what we're using to try to take these pictures of these extrasolar planets. The long-term goal is, is to not just to take pictures of these planets, but to use the energy resolution that our detectors have, the ability to tell what wavelength every photon is, to actually look at the spectrum of light that comes from these planets. Now, if we look at the reflected light from the star off a planet, we can look for uh, atmospheric, we can look for changes in the spectra that are imprinted by the passage of the light through the atmosphere as it reflects off the planet. And that can tell us whether the atmosphere is in chemical equilibrium or not. And if it's not, we're going to ask, um, is that because of life? And so that's one of the things that we're really aiming for. It's going to take a, another generation of large telescopes for us to get there. We need sort of the 30 meter class telescopes, but mm -hmm. that's our goal in the next uh, 10 or 15 years. And if we had a 30 meter class telescope on another planet, Earth-like in every respect, yep. including brilliant scientists like yourself and your students, um, how far out could could they detect us? How far away in our in our uh, galaxy could they see us? So the bad news is um, we're not going to be able to see um, from the ground. We're not going to be able to see Earth-like planets around stars like the sun mm -hmm. because the contrast ratio, the, the brightness of the star of the sun to the brightness of the Earth is about a, is about 10 billion. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's really hard. What we're going to do to make it possible is we're going to look at um, M dwarfs, which are stars that are smaller than the sun, which means the habitable zone gets closer. Mm -hmm. And so the contrast ratio between the star and the planet shrinks to something like 10 to the 8, you know, 10 million, um, 100 million, somewhere in that range. Mm -hmm. And that um, and that becomes doable with our technology. So for the, the but because of um, the planets are so close to their stars, even with the 30 meter telescope, we're probably looking only out at something like 10 parsecs, which is about 30 light years mm -hmm. to um, so it's really just our local neighborhood. You start to need enormous telescopes to look out even farther. The uh, galaxy is very, very big. Yeah, and the speed of light is uh, very, very slow, at least in some ways, because uh, there was a tweet today from Andrew Rader, or Radar, I forget how you say his name. I mispronounce it the way I pronounce your, mis mispronounce your name all the time. And he just did a quick back-of-the-envelope calculation that suggested a grain of sand from here at La Jolla Shores or wherever 
um, tra uh, would impact a spacecraft traveling at 99% the speed of light, maybe 99.9, .9, with enough energy, if you agree with this calculation, of one-third of a Hiroshima-class nuclear weapon. Oh, I can easily believe it, yeah. yeah. So, you know, not only is the galaxy very big, but the speed of light is slow, and yet it's energetic enough to be dangerous, kind of like I am. Um, but thinking about life in the universe, we've had on a lot of the discussions in the past couple of months on this channel and other channels about um, extraterrestrial technology, etc. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, do you believe that there is any kind of sense about asking whether or not there is not only life, but intelligent life, and not only intelligent life, but technological life in the universe? Is that a sensible question? I think it's an absolutely a sensible <laughs> question. I don't think we have much ability to answer that question. But I, 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 uh, I grew up on Star Wars and Star Trek like everybody else in our, my generation. And I'm, of course, fascinated by these questions. I would say that, you know, I can say as an astronomer, from me to you guys, um, we've looked at a lot of things in the sky with astronomy in a lot of wavelengths, radio, optical, near-infrared, X-ray, gamma ray. And we really haven't seen anything that points towards uh, an origin that, we, that, we, that is... Uh, not explicable with natural phenomenon. So unfortunately, I don't think we've seen direct evidence of, uh, you know, technological civilizations modifying their environments on a, on galactic scales, at least. If we did, um, you know, would, wouldn't that not change your research direction? In other words, if we had unequivocal Bayesian high confidence, credible evidence that there are extra, I know for me it would change what research I do. Absolutely. Would it impact you? Yeah, no, I, I, I think it would absolutely change at least the flavor of what we're working on. Um, I, I think my personal opinion, with based on very low evidence, is that we're going to find that single-cell organisms are going to be relatively common throughout the universe. I figure if it happened on Earth, uh, you know, chances are pretty good there's going to be a decent amount of planets with simple life on them. My guess is that uh, it's that intelligent technological life is going to be significantly rare. Mm -hmm. Maybe we may be the only ones in our galaxy now. It, it's very hard to know, but I, I would be, um, I think it's going to turn out to be a rare phenomenon. What would interest you the most about an extraterrestrial intelligent or otherwise uh, species technological? I mean, you could have dolphins or you know, uh, bonobos, uh, what would interest you most, their biology or their physics? Well, I, I have to say my understanding of biology is limited enough that I think the answer is going to be uh, their, their physics. It would be fun to, uh, to compare notes with an extraterrestrial civilization. I, you know, one of my personal, uh, I, I've done a little work on dark matter, um, and I've thought about, uh, thought about dark matter detection experiments because the detectors I work on are also very well suited for sort of low mass dark matter detectors, which have gotten a lot more interesting now that the WIMP miracle seems to be uh, losing steam. So those kind of, um, so, so, you know, I, I believe dark matter probably is a, some kind of particle, although I don't think uh, I'm, I'm going to be doing a lot of work on it because it's a, it's a bit of a fishing expedition. We don't have, we don't have much theoretical guidance. I will say though that dark energy uh, is kind of a very strange thing. And it wouldn't surprise me very much if, we had pretty much just misunderstood something fundamental about the way the universe works, the way geometry works. It'll, it'll be very interesting to see what happens with that in the coming years. Um, <clears throat> when I think about experimental physicists, I think about people, actually I think about someone like Fermi, who was very synoptic in his understanding of theory and experiment. 
Um, I, I do feel like you're kind of in that mold, uh, not to put too much pressure on you, where you have a deep understanding of theory <clears throat> and are the best in the business. You have a brand as a physicist, correct? So yep. we were talking over lunch that, you know, we basically have this budget, you know, to operate our laboratories. It can be in the millions of dollars per year that the grad students never see, and we just take care of it. And then when they become postdocs and professors, then they realize, holy crap, I really owe my my advisor a lot, kind of like the way that we do it when we become parents, right? Mm -hmm. We realize how much our, our parents did for us. But uh, talk about that, the cultivation of a brand as an experimental scientist. What does that mean to you? Yeah, so I'm in a pretty interesting spot because when I came, when I did my thesis in these M kids, they were a new technology and there wasn't very much, many other people working in the field. Um, but my advisor was a submillimeter astronomer, uh, Jonas, Jonas. Yeah, Jonas Mizanis at Caltech. And so, uh, I decided that I didn't want to work in some millimeter like Brian and Jonas um, because it's extremely hard. The mm -hmm. sky is on fire. Your telescope's on fire. You're trying to look through all this fire, and it's it's just incredibly difficult. Um, so I went to the, the optical and near IR where astronomy is uh, a lot easier because the sky is transparent and is not glowing. Um, and so um, I brought my there, and I was sort of – I planted my flag, you know, in that regime is superconducting detectors for optical and near infrared. And they're, you know, to this day are not any other U S based professors who, ha who are planted their flag in, in that particular area. And we've had, have we have a monopoly and I've had a lot of success. Mm -hmm. uh, and that means we get to, you know, we get to have a lot of the fun. That said, I, I do hope we get uh, more competition. I hope my students go on to faculty positions, and there are something like four groups in Europe that have started up to do optical and near and near infrared M kids. And I I think it's really important uh, for my lab and for the field as a whole that there's more people so that we have a bigger community and more brains, you know, working on this problem because there there remain you know large problems uh, to be solved in 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 the physics in our detector physics and and our instrumentation and our algorithms and our technology you know there it turns out that um um we can talk about this next perhaps yeah. but you know the complexity of, of these experiments is extraordinarily high and it takes a lot of people uh working simultaneously to attack them yep talk about the detector technology don't shy away my okay. audience is one of the most brilliant in all the known multiverse which i know you're a big supporter of <laughs> just kidding uh, but we've had nine Nobel laureates, including John Mather, Ray Weiss, uh, Barry Barish, multiple times. Uh, talk us through how these detectors work. What fascinates you most about them? And do not, but under any circumstances, quote, dumb it down. I never do that with my eyes. All right. Fair enough. Okay. So what, what are, so what our detectors look like are a small LC oscillator, right? So you have an inductor and a capacitor hooked together. They have a resonant frequency in the gigahertz range, usually between for, for my detectors, usually between four and eight gigahertz. We can set the resonant frequency during lithography at um, anywhere in that range of four to eight gigahertz. Um, so the, the, the cool thing is, so, the, so you have this little superconducting resonator. Since it's superconducting, it has very little loss. We have internal cues, we call it, of hundreds of thousands. So the resonator, the quality of the resonance is very high. Uh, there's not much loss. So what we do is we send in a microwave signal at the resonant frequency of the device. Um, when and the, the device oscillates um, as it's being like a driven harmonic oscillator, a photon will come in and hit the inductor. When it hits the inductor, it breaks up the carriers of superconductivity, which are known as Cooper pairs, creating two electrons, one spin up and one spin down. If you wait about 50 microseconds, those electrons will find each other and pair back up into a Cooper pair. But for that brief moment after the photon hits, they're broken up 
and you have these free uh, electrons. Those free unpaired electrons uh, change the surface impedance of this film. So the way to think about this is that the inductor in our circuit is a photon variable inductor. A photon hits it, the L changes. It actually goes up, which is interesting. Um, so what happens is when we watch this microwave probe signal that we send into our, into our resonator, we watch the phase of that microwave signal. And when the, so when a photon hits, you get a big pulse in the phase and then it decays back down to zero on a time constant of about 25 microseconds. And the height of that pulse tells us how much energy was in the, uh, in the photon because a blue photon will break a lot of Cooper pairs and give a big pulse and a red photon will break less and give a smaller pulse. And we can tell when the photon came in from the, when the photon rises. So the real advantage of this MKID technology over some of the other superconducting technologies out there like transition edge sensors um, is that uh, we have built-in frequency domain multiplexing. Because the resonator is a high Q resonant circuit, it looks like a little notch filter. It doesn't affect free, uh, microwave frequencies uh, that aren't right on its resonance. So what we can do is put 2,000 of these LC circuits and hang them off a single microwave wire called a feed line. And that lets us read out essentially 2,000 pixels with something we call frequency division multiplexing on that, um, on that wire. And that's what lets us get to these you know, 20,000 pixel MKID uh, arrays that we're, that we're working with now. And these have to be cooled down, in some cases, close to absolute zero. Yes, this is the downside of working with superconductors for your detectors, is that um, you need to get cold to make them work. Um, you can think about this in a thermal sense. As you get cold, things stop moving as quickly, and so the noise from thermal jitter goes down. Essentially, that's what's going on with the MKIDs. And so that lets us, so we operate our current MKIDs at 100 millikelvin, 0.1 degrees above absolute zero. Uh, our future generations may run up closer to 20 millikelvin. Um, and this is, uh, while this sounds daunting, you can go uh, on the internet and purchase a fridge like this that'll get to these temperatures uh, off the shelf. Yeah. It'll cost a little money, but it's, uh, it, it is uh, doable. Yeah, one of our colleagues, uh, Mark Devlin, who's a co the Coast spokespeople for the Simons Observatory used to call these tenure killers um, mm. when you were trying to build a delicious refrigerator back in the bad old days. Oh, that's not fun we're at all. We're going to get to tenure and stuff later, but on the academic hunger games, as I call it. But I want to ask you, you mentioned a little bit about collaboration, the diversity of intellect that you have to achieve in order mm -hmm. to have a healthy, successful field. Talk about right. your partnerships with people that we know here, like Shelley Wright or Jessica Liu or all the optical astronomers and people that you work with across the broad spectrum of astronomy that you engage in when you put these cameras under vacuum, by the way, you, we, we didn't mention that they have to be a, a vacuum, what a million times better than atmospheric pressure, something like that. They, they cryo pump <laughs> themselves to, to some extent, but yeah, yeah it's, it's a very good vacuum. So now you take this, put it at a huge telescope's focus, eight meter diameter, uh, nine times the collecting area, 10 times the collecting area of the Hubble space telescope on top of a mountain in Hawaii. You put it all there but the object is to collect data. And what right. is that data? What do you do with it? Who gets to look at it? Where does it go to? Yep. And what does the spectrum of astronomy look like um, in terms of human capital, the most precious resource? Yeah, so it's it's definitely uh, a challenge. So we, we have a uh, big team. So at UCSB, um, where, we, we're, where we're working on the detector, I have somewhere between six and eight graduate students uh, at a given time, three or four postdocs, a staff scientist. So we have about 12, 13 people uh, plus a bunch of undergrad researchers who are all working on on improving the pipeline and the instrument and, and the data analysis and the science, um, all that stuff. But outside UC, UCSB, we have we have, we can't do this alone. So 
We work with um, Olivier Guillon and Julian Lozzi at the Subaru um, Observatory, uh, who built the Skex AO instrument. We interface with them every day uh, to worry about how to get our instrument. And they have a team of a lot more people than I just mentioned who are supporting that. Um, we work um, with people all around the UC and, and elsewhere uh, on the data analysis and on the algorithms and techniques to get the most of, out of our data. So we, uh, we're currently hunt funded by the Heising Simons Foundation. Uh, to work on a direct imaging technology program. So we have collaborations like uh, with Jared Males at Arizona. We're actually bringing uh, one of our instruments down to Chile at, and the Magellan Telescope, hopefully this fall, uh, to do some, some direct imaging work from the Southern Hemisphere. Um, we work with Mike Fitzgerald at, um, at UCLA, Rebecca Jensen-Clem at, um, at um, Santa Cruz. Um, I've worked some with Quinn Konopaki here at, at UCSD. Um, and... Uh, uh, there, there really are uh, too many people to mention, but uh, you know, it takes it takes big teams to be able to pull off uh, this work. And I think my MKID stuff uh, is actually getting to the point where the CMB field was maybe 15 years ago, where we're we're getting to the point where future instruments maybe might be too big to pull off in in one group. So mm -hmm. hopefully, we'll uh, we'll generate some new groups to uh, yeah. to help us out. Let's talk about that before we do. Um, just remind people we're talking with. Uh, Ben Zine of UC Santa Barbara. One of these days I'll get his name pronounced correctly. You got it. And he is a distinguished professor. He is a chair professor up there. And Santa Barbara is one of the best places on earth to live uh, outside of, I think, La Jolla is pretty darn nice, Ben. It's pretty nice. Agree? Yeah, I like it down here. Um, <laughs> uh, what does the data look like? Before we leave our nerdisms, yeah. let's, let's talk about what do you get out? Do you get out like uh, a map like we do in the CMB, where then it's cleaned, calibrated, processed, filtered, and then... What do you give to the uh, optical? Would you share yeah. this data with the community, by the way? We, so what happens is when, when we take the data, every photon, uh, we, we can't record our raw data because the data rate from our 20,000 pixel array is actually about a terabit per second. It's too much to record. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we do a lot of onboard processing with FPGAs. And what we end up with at the end of that is um, every photon gets turned into a 64-bit packet uh, that tells you the X and Y position where the photon arrived the time of its arrival and how much and what its energy was essentially, and so those. So what we get is not an image, but an extremely long table that includes where where every entry is a single photon. And so we have a MKID pipeline. You can, if you want to see what it looks like, you can go look at it on GitHub under uh, GitHub slash Mazine Lab. Um, and our pipeline takes that data, takes calibration data that we take, um, you know, usually before the observations and. Um, and rolls it all together into um, uh, a calibrated photon list. And then from that, we use a drizzle algorithm, much like HST, to take that and make either image cubes or, you know, the, the data product depends on what, on what the final analysis that you're doing is. Sometimes you want to work with that time tag photon list where you, the calibration process gives you RA and DEC and photon energy for every photon. Sometimes you want to work with image cubes, um, which are, you know, a bunch of images, each of different wavelengths. So we, um, so, uh, so depending on what the ex exact, uh, analysis we want to do is the pipeline has ways to put the data into different formats, but there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into, um, into that part of it. You know, the glamor might be, you might think it's staying up all night, uh, taking the data at the telescope, but that's, that's just the fun part. You know, you're, there's people sitting in front of computers for person years of time, 
making the data pipelines, making the firmware that actually took the raw data and compressed it. It's there's there's a lot of work in, in all of these stages of, of this work. Imaging, it might be a year. It might be a thesis. Right? Yeah, we get well. We take two or three terabytes <laughs> of data on a on a on a single night of observing. Sometimes, and that's after throwing away. That's after throwing away a huge quantity. Yeah. So, if you saw something, first of all, what mm -hmm. would it look like? Um, what would be the next step? Is it going to be in the New York Times front page, or is it more in an astronomer's telegram? What, so what we just we just published see? a um, we just published a paper um, it, um, by my uh, excellent grad student Sarah Steiger uh, that you that that showed uh, discovered a new uh, substellar companion. So it's a star, an A star, which is a bright star brighter than the sun, with a little M dwarf right next to it, very close in. And we use this interesting technique using the arrival time of the photons to distinguish the light from the of the of the star that gets scattered and diffracted into speckles. From uh, from the planet, and so that we just published this. You can find it on the on the archive if you search for my name. Um, and so, what our data looks like at the end of the day is basically an image with the center blacked out, and hopefully some bright dots that are more significant than the background dots, which are uh, the the planets we hope to see. Now, in the the regime, while we're using these eight meter telescopes like Subaru or a ten meter like Keck or a six and a half meter like Magellan, we're we're only looking at the tip of these of the distribution of planets. We're basically looking at young hot planets that are at least, you know, past Saturn's orbit. Like these are they're they're more massive than Jupiter, young and hot, and that's what we can see with our current technology. What we're hoping to do with this next generation of telescopes is to be able to push in closer to the star and go deeper and see the um the fainter planets. And the reason we can do this is because in this adaptive optics regime where we're diffraction limited, um, the, the figure of merit, we call it, which is tells us how well we do uh, at this direct imaging technique, it goes as something like the diameter of the telescope to the fourth power. Mm -hmm. So going from an 8-meter telescope to a 30-meter telescope, it increases mm -hmm. that figure of merit by something like 200. And that's what lets us go from just barely seeing Jupiters to hopefully being able to see terrestrial planets around, uh, around low-mass stars. Mm -hmm. We talked earlier about the you know, kind of pathway to to, you know, people being interested from maybe science fiction and thinking about, as, as my friend and former guest Adam Frank calls them, you know, uh, creatures with prosthetic foreheads, you know, mm -hmm. they kind of intrigue the mind. Before we get to that, and also this super secret entity that you're affiliated mm -hmm. with uh, that I'm so curious about, uh, I just want to take one detour into academia, mm -hmm. which, um, you know, you and I have managed and we are the survivors of this huge apex in a predator yep. uh, kind of, uh, kind of a hunger game, as I call it. Uh, what do you make of the future of academia? I mean, here we had a search. The last search we had pre-COVID was, you know, 390 people for one spot. And and we, I don't even think I converged because COVID came and they took away the money. I've had top talent in my in my lab um, at the faculty level. Best people better than me can't get a job. On the yep. other hand, my postdocs, who are the most brilliant, you know, I'm sure you would say yours are too, yep. um, they have a very easy time getting a postdoc. And so I liken it to a very surprising situation as if the Major League Baseball was as hard to get into as it is now, but Triple A Baseball, you know, we have our beloved, um, you know, Elsinore, mm -hmm. uh, Lake Elsinore uh, Storm and the El Paso Chihuahuas. I know you follow those regularly. Regularly. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but one of the benefits of living in, in a city like San Diego is we have a very strong baseball, you know, heritage. We used to have a football team, we're not going to talk about them because yeah, no. we, we want to keep it clean. Uh, but. It's, it would be as if you could get into the – I could get into AAA baseball. And yep. In terms of academia, there's a surplus of jobs for every postdoc, and there's almost no jobs. Almost a good approximation to the half percent level. 
you can't get a job in academia as a faculty member like you and I. So what what do you say to the to you know people that are coming up after us? We made it up. Are we pulling up the ladder behind us and saying good luck? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's us who's pulling up the ladder. I, I put a lot of the blame on the funding agencies. I think uh, inflation is has not been two percent a year. I don't care what they say. Uh, it's, it's it's a lot higher, and our costs are going up, but the size of the grants are not matching it, and so. And the, and the success rate of getting those grants has gone down, and that, especially in, in astronomy. And I think that has driven some of these issues. I, I will say that while it is easy to get a postdoc, I, I don't think it's that easy to get into a high-quality grad school. Yes. The applicants we're seeing to get into grad school are really, really good these days. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of great people who still want to go. So they go to grad school. They can get a postdoc. Part of the problem might be that you know my last three graduates, two or three graduate students, a couple have gone to industry and they're getting offers of 150 to $170,000 a year straight out of grad school to go work in what we make as full professors to work in. And that's the ones who are working in quantum computing. If you know how to be a dilution fridge jockey, uh, there's a job for you. And the data sciences has pulled a lot of people away too. So that's true. Um, but it is, but the, the problem remains that it's very hard to get a job as a, a as a faculty at a research institution. And I think that's because the field's not growing. I think deans and people who make the decision about where faculty FTE are allocated, they look at astrophysics and they see the amount of money that people are bringing in. And then they look at a field like biophysics or uh, quantum information. And that's, I think they're putting their, they see that those fields are exploding. And I think astronomy has kind of stagnated a little bit. Um, and I, I hope that we'll get some energy re-injected with uh, some of the administration's new plans, Chuck Schumer's new, you know, uh, there's the CHIPS Act and the, I forget what New Frontiers Act, whatever it's called. I know these are, these are currently working their way through uh, Congress, and hopefully uh, those will, will come to fruition and there'll be more, um, and we'll, we'll get a little life injected in the field. Because it is, we're in a place where it's really hard to get things done. Experimental physicist, I think mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's appropriate to have people with, I always say that we're kind of like the Swiss Army Knives or the MacGyvers or, or what have yep. you. And in my new book, upcoming book, Think Like a Nobel Prize winner, I interviewed nine Nobel Prize winning physicists. And they really, you know, I would say we, we physicists, I'm not, I'm not that good at anything, but we're not maybe the best coders. We're maybe not the best engineers. We're maybe not the best, you know, mathematicians, but nobody can, in, you know, can, can maximize the length of that combined vector within this uh, abstract Hilbert space of mm -hmm. utility players than physicists. So it's natural that you, and of those, my personal prejudice is towards experimentalists because to be a good experimentalist, tell me if I'm wrong, I think you have to understand the theory. You don't have to do new theory, but you have to understand the theory as well as a you know beginning grad student, advanced grad, however you want to say. Yeah, um, I think that's right. Yeah, so, um, but in the context of you know governmental agency, and, you know, it used to be kind of a joke, uh, what's the biggest oxymoron? It's you know military intelligence. When I look back at the events of 2020, um, things that, that rhyme with blovid or movid or things like that, mm -hmm. I remember, you know, my friends in academia and elsewhere, and even in the in the military, saying things like, "Oh, look at look at what's happening in China." You know, they're such a repressive guy; they're locking people up, doing whatever they were doing. And I'm not going to speculate where it came from or how it came about. We're just going to say the narrative was was in place in January. I remember hearing about in January getting invited to speak in Tibet. And having to kind of reconsider going because of what might happen with COVID, and then of course nobody could go. But if I knew back in, you know, how come the advanced apparatus of our NSA, our TSA, our CIA, how come you know, and the Jasons and, and whatnot, um, how come there wasn't more kind of coordinate? Like this is strange. We should maybe stock up on some, you know, uh, fifty cent masks. Like how how can 
we reconcile a government that can do you know almost nothing to prevent something that's 100% predictable or CNN knew about it there's no reason the NSA or the Jasons should know about it so like how do you reconcile those well two re- remember the government the Jasons only work on things that they've been contracted for sure. by the government okay. um, so they they you know that Fine. Not blaming. They give them direct technical <laughs> advice on topics we're specifically requested to comment on, not policy advice. Sure. But um, but the the other answer, I think there's there's two there's two answers. Um, the first answer is um, it's been a hundred years since the last pandemic, and we forgot the lessons that we learned through it. And the second answer is that uh, the Biden uh, or the Obama administration handed off a document called the Pandemic Playbook to the Trump administration and they didn't implement it. So I would say that you can uh, you can put the blame where you were, but I think we I think in 2018 we had the structures uh, or at least in, and and I think uh, there is a well-documented Twitter history uh, or real life history of this as well. Mm-hmm. So I think I think it was a mismanagement at the federal level um, uh, and uh, and we should have been better prepared and I think uh, we need to make sure that next time this happens we are better prepared because uh, you know, new viruses are emerging all the time. Global travel. You know, this is far outside my field of expertise. Sure. But, um, but yeah, I, I will say I was uh, fully stocked up and ready to be isolated for three or four months by the beginning of March. So, no, no, if you read the news, if you if you read the newspapers and did some and did some projection, it wasn't. It shouldn't have been a surprising conclusion what happened. Yeah, yeah. And I'd also like to say to all your viewers, please take the vaccine. COVID is a, it's a, it's a horrible way to die. And the vaccine is very effective. I, I have it. My kids have it. It's a great. It's a good thing. Take the vaccine. One of the uh, things that uh, I remember you doing in the very beginning is making a model on open open source on Google's Jupyter yeah. Notebook or something on what could happen to Santa Barbara. You know, COVID. That was very early days. Yeah, I just early. I remember that. Early. I just wanted to know. You know, when do I need to start freaking out about the number of um, of ICU beds yeah. and, uh, yeah, and and then. And do a simple model of it, but yep. it was amazing how naive we were back in back in the day. Um, mm-hmm. But this is the way a physicist thinks, and that's you know kind of what struck me about it um, that you were kind of just thinking and modeling, and and actually from an empiricist standpoint, which yep. is what I think we have to do as experimentalists. Uh, which brings me maybe to the final set of topics tangentially related to Jason. But I've, mm-hmm. I've heard you know people say that you know, and I've been on a lot of uh, channels, alien scientists. I've had on you know, uh, people from the pro-UFO community, the anti-UFO community, um, and people saying things like, how come Ed Witten doesn't know about these these UAPs that are decided not far off the coast of where we're sitting right now? I've, I've talked to some of the pilots and uh, um, Alex Ann Dietrich and, and others who's affiliated with Commander Fravor and stuff like that. So anyway, the, the question I have is, if there was a credible, I'm not saying mm-hmm. that there is or has been or whatever, but would the Jasons get called? In other words, do we have a appropriate response within the community of physicists or physical scientists. I'm not saying everyone in Jason is a physicist by any means, but would they be part of a frontline defense? And, you know, if you can't talk, just blink twice. About this. But, no, I, but, I don't think it's, it, again, it would have, the government would have to come to them and say, uh, we want you to do a study on this. And I think they would be pretty wary about taking that kind of study on. Um, I, I know I would be wary about working on it, not only from the, I think, um, especially if there are preconceived notions that there may be, you know, that these unidentified phenomena might not, might be uh, of alien origin, which I think is extraordinarily speculative. So uh, there's all kinds of phenomena we don't understand. Um, There's all kinds of things that can fool the human eye and fool cameras and radars. So it would be, um, 
I, th- I think it would be uh, it would be a hard thing to uh, uh, to to make a realistic doable study for for an organization like Jason and I don't and as far as I know they've never been asked to look at it but I don't know everything that's for sure right yeah no just to you know again along the themes of you know as the Simpsons say you know mm-hmm. who's watching the watchers and Homer says I don't know the Coast Guard you know like yeah so who's you know who's who's kind of manning or personing yeah. the watch mm-hmm. yeah it's not us mm-hmm. so good yeah. luck <laughs> <laughs> well you know I think it's I think it's fascinating to think about again at worst to me it's kind of harmless fun right because you're thinking about the physics of the 29 yeah I, I worry though that you that we give people an idea that that the credibility to these ideas that they may not deserve there's very it's very hard to um, to take isolated incidents like this and make mm-hmm. a leap to aliens visiting us because there are very I mean as an astronomer I'll tell you this we've looked at a lot of we've looked at a lot of stars in the Milky Way with with a lot of different sources in the optical the x-ray the near infrared the gamma ray um, we've looked at um, we've looked at other galaxies very closely and in all in everything we've seen we do not see any evidence of alien technology now it, it could absolutely be there but we don't see any evidence for it and you know it the distances between stars are awfully long we have no evidence i'm sorry to rain on people's parades we really don't have any evidence for physics beyond the standard model that would allow things like a warp drive you know uh, you know that that stuff looks like pure science fiction unfortunately i would love one as much as the next guy but it doesn't seem to be there and so and you know we're, we do very sensitive experiments we look at you know we look at couplings between uh, between the standard model forces and you know and gravity and things that would let us do technologies, they just don't seem to be there. They don't seem we haven't seen any fifth forces with very good experiments. So you know, in the combination of those things and also you know all the things we don't understand about nature anyway, it makes me very dubious that these that these events are anything but um, uh, you know atmospheric phenomenon or things we don't understand. Now. I definitely could be wrong and I'm open to it as a, as an experimentalist, you know, if, if I'm given a, a clean data set, you know, I'll, I'll change my conclusions. I do think that's one thing that a lot of people in this field too, um, think that physicists are exceptionally closed minded and we have a model that we like. I, I think that's over overplayed. Um, because if you are right and you do have a new theory, you, that is then proven to be correct that you get the, that's the biggest reward there is. So, it, the problem is that new theories have to fit the existing data, and that's the problem where most of the theories end up getting tripped up, is that we do have a lot of data on the universe, and your new theory has to fit in that in the context of that existing knowledge. Yeah, to me it's not even clear what constitutes data. Like, if you look at, you know, I made this point, you know, in the repository of all scientific knowledge on Twitter, and, and that was, you know, the Hubble Deep Field, it, okay, it's data of a certain kind, just the image, yep. right? Mm-hmm, sure. It's a type of data... You know, if I hand you a picture of a the bicep tube map, yeah, yep. it's data, but it's not data, right? No, you need the context, data, right? Yeah. yeah. So you need calibration, you need filtering, you need process, all the stuff that you throw away, which with you know, and, and LHC throws away. I won't say we ass. throw away; we incorporate you it filter. into the analysis, right? Yeah. yeah, you're not discarding it, but I'm saying most of the events, just to say at uh, CMS or Atlas at the LHC, 99.99% of the actual data are just background events that are not important. So they have filters. Yep. You know, how many Higgs boson events were there that led to the 2013 Nobel Prize, 2012, 2013 Nobel Prize? It was mm. a handful, two, yep. two handfuls maybe. 
So I think, but, and the other point that you make is, uh, which is well taken, is that nobody would be more excited about this. It's not like, you know, big physicists, you know, there's something like big physicists or big pharma, and we're just suppressing, you know, the, the free generic alternative. No, I mean, I would love more than almost anything. I, I just said, and I think you might have even agreed, if this were verified, if there were some like evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that there are extraterrestrial phenomena or maybe in the yeah. product of technology, we would maybe change our whole research focus because it might be the most interesting thing that happens. I want to close with a question that I ask all, all my uh, beloved guests who honor me by mm-hmm. coming on a series of questions that I call the Into the Impossible Thrilling Three. And uh, as a friend, I'm, I'm very curious about how you, how you answer this. So the first one involves what in Hebrew, and you speak Hebrew or know some Hebrew, uh, but it's very called little. Zava'ah. It's mm-hmm. called the Zava'ah. And it means ethical will. Mm-hmm. And it's something not unlike what Alfred Nobel did when they bestowed the Nobel Prize for the benefit of all mankind. In other mm-hmm. words, not just money, but something to, uh, to engage the ethical component of humanity. I want to ask you, Professor uh, Mazin, what would you leave as your ethical will when you reach the biblical age of 120 years old, many, many decades from now? What ethical wisdom or knowledge that you've accumulated uh, to date or to that point would you leave as an inheritance for your ideological heirs, not your biological? That's a, that is an interesting and tough question. I have to say that, um, that when I do my research, um, there is a component of selfishness in it because I work on what I find to be interesting. Many people have, uh, you know, have issues with this. They find that they, uh, that, that, that the research they're doing in astrophysics doesn't have enough impact on life on the ground. And, um, and so they, they find other things. I'm, I've come to terms with the selfishness of inquiry uh, and, and doing what, what following my, uh, what I want to do and what I find most interesting. And so my, my advice to, to those future generations was, would be let your curiosity take you uh, where, where it leads and, you know, go out there and, um, you know, allow yourself to think about uh, the things that interest you and work on them. Cause those are the things that you're going to work on the hardest that are going to give you the most satisfaction. Beautifully said. I remember seeing you in the lab late at night in Westbridge, uh, 20 years ago. I can't believe it. At least I've known you for 20 years. Uh, and we should get together more often because it's so much fun yeah, to, to be together absolutely. and learn a lot from you. And uh, I benefit a lot too. Uh, I don't know if you ever went upstairs to that little reading room where they had a bust of Feynman, right? You're mm-hmm. supposed to yep. rub his nose or something. I don't know. Did you ever do that? Did you ever rub Feynman's I, I nose? Do not, I do not recall rubbing Feynman's <laughs> nose. I am not particularly superstitious. Yes. So, uh, so Feynman is uh, reputed to say upon asked the question of what single sentence would encapsulate the most information in the fewest words, he said the atomic hypothesis. that Everything is made of atoms whirling around at enormous mm-hmm. velocities, and everything's composed of atoms. Um, that was set 60 years ago. I want to ask you, what would you put on a monolith, like in 2001, A Space Odyssey, a time capsule designed to last for a billion years or more that summarizes the current state of human knowledge, technology, um, engineer, whatever you see appropriate that is most impressive about the accomplishments of the human race? Wow. That's a, that, that is a, a question that encapsulates a lot of... Um, of ideas and will be very hard to generate on short notice. But I will say that um, that the universe is extraordinarily vast. We're extraordinarily small, and just the fact that we're here is enough for me. You know, I think um, people get philosophical about it, but in the end, you have your life. You live it as well as you can. 
you take the pleasure where you can find it, you treat other people well, and that's all you can ask from a person. And so that's what I, uh, that's what I would say, you know, just live our lives, you know, chill out, and we'll learn, we'll learn about our universe, and uh, it'll be okay. Very good. All right. The last question involves the title of this podcast, which is Into the Impossible, and it derives from one of Sir Arthur C. Clarke's famous three laws, one of which is for every expert, Mm -hmm. there's an equal and opposite expert. Number two is any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Mm -hmm. And number three is the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture beyond them into the impossible. That's in my podcast. I want to ask you if I had talked, if you could go back to Westbridge on a mm-hmm. night in Pasadena many decades ago, at 20 years old, 30, whatever you were, 25, yep. maybe 26, um, what would you tell? What one piece of advice would you give the young Ben to give him the courage to go into the impossible? Basically, advice to your former self. Yeah. Well, I, I have to say, I've never lacked in self confidence. So <laughs> I don't know if I would have needed uh, that boost. Um, I, I think uh, that that I think I would probably not not mess with my timeline. Mm-hmm. I think I would probably not not give myself any advice. I think things turned out pretty well. I'm relative. I'm happy with the way things are going, and uh, you know, I, I, I'd uh, I'd played my hand that I was dealt. Okay, it's kind of the Abraham Simpson advice. If yep. you ever go back in time a, billi- a million years, don't step on anything. That's right. And Homer didn't take that advice. Ben, it's great to see you in person. Thanks for being a friend and right. helping us on the Simon's Observatory as yeah. you have in the past. And for coming down here and doing what you do for the country, I do actually have a great deal of respect. Uh, you might, you know, uh, you know, kind of be too too modest to admit it, but I do feel it is a service incumbent upon all scientists that receive public funding to do some kind of giving back, some kind of outreach to the public. And we're all um, byproduct of public schools. You're, sure. You're, you know, I don't know, but but we're supported by grants. You're doing your part. I, I I laud you for that, and may you have great success in the rest of your endeavors. Anything you want to plug? Uh, graduate students, undergraduates um, apply to UCSD. So yeah, after UCSD, we do have uh, we do recruit one or two new graduate students a year. You can go to my website www.mazinelab.org, um, and uh, yeah, that's that basically sums it up. You know, if you have questions about M kids, if you want to make donations to the cause, uh, you can uh, you can find uh, my website and uh, and we'll be happy to talk. <laughs> And you got to write a book now because we oh, need boy. more experimentalists writing books. Yeah, that, yeah. I, I wrote a thesis. I figure that was close enough to a book for me. But, it, you know, maybe maybe nobody read it. Who knows? You know, maybe cool. Jonas read it too. Uh, ben Mazine, thank you so much for going into the impossible. Okay, thank you. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thank you for listening to Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R Brian Keating. And join our premieres Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, Visit Professor Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating. <laughs>